There were a lot of things that got put on hold this year. Uh, graduations, um, schools have been put on hold and still some schools are going back now. Other schools are just waiting, so they're doing everything online, kind of like we are now. Um, right, and we are all waiting for this coronavirus to kind of disappear, or at least get a handle on, we can get a handle on it so we can figure out what to do next. Um, and so I didn't really realize it until yesterday that one of the biggest, bigger world events that got put on hold was the Olympics. Right, and so athletes train for years to compete, just to be able to compete and make the Olympic team, right? So they're, they make their national team, they represent their country, they're getting ready to go, and all of a sudden they're told everything has to stop. Everything has to wait on and be put on hold, and they're supposed to have it next year in 2021. And so imagine doing all this preparation, doing all the things right, eating right, working out, whatever, whatever sport, you know, putting all the hours into whatever sport or event you're doing, and you're told to wait. And so you're trying to peak at the right time and make sure you're ready for, the, for the, uh, the Olympics, and all of a sudden you can't. But imagine also, too, getting to the, the stage, the, this world stage, and then an injury happens as well, right? So all of a sudden you're ready, you've done all this preparation, and, and, and things get derailed because of a, a bad injury, ankle, hamstring, whatever it is, right? And so... Sometimes we question, like, why do you do all that work if it's, it's a one-time event every four years? Things like that. Now, they compete in other sports usually. But sometimes people kind of look at it and go, is it worth doing it? Is it worth going on and doing all these things if it's so slow? Or if it's, just, if it's a one-time thing, right? And so there, this decision to participate in the Olympics is something, you know, the, this one thing. But doing everything necessary to make it come true is quite another, right? It's a lot of work to do with a lot of time invested. And so I'm going to give you one name for now, and that name is Wilma Rudolph. And we're going to see how her perseverance helped her achieve her goals and then actually really achieved more than what she was looking for because God had a hand in this of what she was doing and why I think why she was put on the, this world stage. But William Perkins, who's a, a Puritan preacher who explains that we have two different needs in our lives, that are right? And we have an individual's need for justification, which is or outward righteousness, and we also have the pursuit of sanctification or inward righteousness, right? And so we talked about the first one, the, the justification, being outwardly justified to God last week in the letter to Galatians. And so this week, Paul is talking to the Thessalonians about sanctification, right? So these, this inward righteousness, the things that we have a little bit more control over maybe. Um, and so we're going to go ahead and read 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. That, that sets up the whole letter, and really it sets up both letters. And so here's, here's what Paul says. Paul, Silvanus, or maybe Silas, depending on what your version you have, and Timothy. The church of the Thessalonians and God, and the God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We always thank God for all of you, making mention of you constantly in our prayers. We recall in the presence of our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. 
For we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel did not come to you in the word alone, but also in power and the Holy Spirit with full assurance. You know how we lived among you for your benefit, and you yourselves became imitators of us and of the Lord when in spite of severe persecution you welcomed the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. As a result, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Acacia. For the word of the Lord rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Acacia, but in every place that your faith in God has gone out. Therefore, we don't need to say anything. For they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you. How you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. And that's the word of the Lord from Paul. And that kind of sets up the entire two letters, the message, both letters that he's writing to, to this church. And so here's our main point. I can't share the slides because I'm already have started. So it's either look at me or look at the slides. And I thought I could do both. But here's the main point. Prayer increases your ability to persevere. Right? Prayer increases your ability to persevere through life, through the trials and tribulations. And so we're going to get a little background for Thessalonica, for the church. Now we went through more in depth. We did an eight-week study just on these two letters last October, November, I believe it was. It was right before Thanksgiving and Christmas. So those are on the website of the, this, the, the, the podcasts that we have, the audio files. And so this is a higher level. So, But if you want to look at the origins of the church of Thessalonica, you go... Luke gives us the story in Acts chapter 16 and part of chapter 17. And so to quickly recap that, so after going through the Galatians region, right, through Galatia, and picking up Timothy onto his missionary team, Paul Paul and Luke and everybody else, they, they record this in Acts 16.9, that Paul had a vision about a man saying, come over and help us in Macedonia. And so they went to Philippi, so this is their first entrance into Europe. And so they went to Philippi first, and then to Thessalonica. And so Paul made converts, and Luke notes that many of them were devout Greeks or pagans, or they're kind of interchangeable, and not a few of the leading women. So in European society, in the Greek society, the women were able to do, have businesses and things like that. They were more prominent. So he was able to... Uh, convert some of the leading women in the city which would have had big, bigger ramifications for everybody uh, to get people on board with things um, with, the Christ, with the new Christian faith and so it is important to know also that the Jews tried to have Jason and some of the other brothers the new Christians uh, arrested they took them to the authorities and this is in Thessalonica because they were proclaiming another king other than Caesar right they were proclaiming that Jesus was king he's the real king and so they were accused of turning the world upside down, which is, my, which is my favorite verse of the whole Bible, I think, almost, because that is what the church is supposed to be doing. We are supposed to be turning the world upside down. And so Paul and Silas, they had to be snuck out of the city in the dark of night, and they go to Berea. But Paul keeps in touch with the, with the church in Thessalonica via the two letters that we have. So Paul wrote these letters with, with uh, Silas or Silvanus, and Timothy, somewhere around 50, maybe to 52 A.D., somewhere in there. 
And so we're going to look at two things here. We're going to look at the orthodoxy. So Paul talks about theology, and then Paul talks about how we live this theology out, right? The orthopraxy. So the orthodoxy and the orthopraxy. So first, he's telling them two things with his theology. Is that God is preparing you for your Christian life on earth, and also that God is preparing you for his return. Right? Those are the two theological thrusts that Paul is making and so both of these actions though require patience because it takes a long time to change from being a pagan to to becoming a Christian and, and getting rid of all those things that, the, that we as pagans do and it's weird that we think of ourselves as pagans but if you're not a Christian you're a pagan right so that's just kind of the way it is and so the best way to keep up with this and the best way to have keep up with your patience and make sure you're doing this is through prayer. And so first, the God is preparing you for your Christian life on earth here. And so in 1 Thessalonians 4.1, Paul's kind of giving, starting to give a recap where he's kind of moving through things. He says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that you, as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Right? He wants them to be encouraged that they've got a good report. You, said, you heard in chapter 1 that, look, the region knows about you, the work you're doing in and around Thessalonica and Macedonia. The, the, the regions, they heard Christ and they see Christ through you and in you. And he, he wants to encourage them. And so in chapter 2, verse 12, in the same letter, the first letter, Paul reminds the church that he charged them to walk in the manner worthy of God, right? So who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So this isn't just something you do, like joining the Olympics. Oh, I want to do this as completely voluntary. And of course, it's voluntary as well to become a Christian. But he's saying that God has called you. You are God called us into this. It wasn't somebody's selected you to be on the Olympic team. God selected you to be a Christian. Because he is glorifying himself through us because people see the transformation from, from pagan to Christian, a true Christian. And so for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Right? But that journey is sometimes difficult, right? We, we can look back and say, oh yeah, I've definitely made progress through my life as, as from the time I wasn't a Christian to the time I, was, I am now. And later, ten years from now or five years from now, you can do the same thing even in your own Christian life. I can say, yes, I've gotten more sanctified and that doesn't make me holier than anybody else but just means you can track your changes through and there's noticeable things that happen over time now it may not look that way day to day but it's way it's that way well, when you look at a take a longer look right but sometimes though we want to go back to playing in the mud right we want to go back because the world's dirt gets on us and it feels good it's it feels sometimes reassuring unfortunately and so we 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 are wanting to go back, just like the Thessalonians, they were doing certain things because Paul received good reports to the church, but he left super quickly. He had to go very suddenly or they would have been thrown into jail and possibly killed. Right? But he also wanted to give instructions to the church. He said this, is, this was while they were steadfast in the face of persecution and they exhibited a good deal of charity and faith. Right? So they were doing these things that they wanted to do or that Paul had instructed them to do, but they did have struggles and particularly in regards to sexual relations being confined to a Christian marriage because, again, the different Greek societies and what they required had different rules for who you could and couldn't have sexual relations with and things like this. So it was important because it was a, this was a change 
to their previously pagan lifestyle, and so they had to be prepared for this. And so Paul was encouraging them, like, look, you need to work on this aspect, you need to keep going, don't throw it away, because here's the other thing, because the second point of the orthodoxy was that God is preparing you for the end times, or He's preparing you for the future and the new life, right? So they were kind of maybe falling away or trying to trying to seem like they were falling away because they were waiting for the end time. They were waiting for the Christ's return. And at one point, they actually thought that they got word from somebody that said, well, you guys missed it. It already happened. And so they said, well, if that's the case, then I'm going to go back to my old life. But it seems like people are fascinated by end times. So Paul gave them some kind of eschatology. He gave them the report, the, the you know, probably the, the story from Jesus, and especially in Mark 13, of how the end times would happen. And so they were fascinated by it, it seems like. And so just like today, right, if you read the news, you try to line up everything that we think are signs, right, that the end is near. And I'm not saying that it is yet, you know, but we are in the end times. But But that's in one sense because from... When Jesus ascended from Acts, or in Acts, all the way till now, right, it, it moves us into that end times age. And so we're moving to these last days, we're living in the last days, but it doesn't mean the day of the Lord is coming today or tomorrow. But it means He can come because Paul says He's going to come like a thief in the night. That's what this, and it echoes Jesus' words. And so we are to be prepared, we are to be ready, we are to make disciples and get other people ready as well that God has called. And it's so, the Thessalonians are waiting. They thought they missed it, so they started to kind of, maybe some people started to fall away. And they grabbed onto this eschatology, right? It's fun, it's it's interesting. I started, I had the trouble because I was actually doing some research to see what I had to do or what I could talk about and whatnot, but for this week, but I, you get sucked in to everything because there's so many Ideas. If you read Revelation, if you look at different things, and so it's very, it is very fascinating, and you can go through and line up because even the church fathers, the first, second, third century, they thought they were living in the end times. It was going, it was imminent, and it is right. It is an imminent time, but not yet, right? So the Thessalonica church was thought it was going to be very quickly. And so Paul says, though, look, don't be alarmed if you get a letter that seems to be from us saying that the day of the Lord has come because it hasn't yet. You'll know it. And he gives the signs. He says the trumpet, the trumpet sounds, the, the, the clouds come down, Jesus comes down. Right? And so we hear this and we see these signs. And so it's important that we know what the signs are, but we need to make sure we're putting the correct signs into it. Right, not getting into the into the entire debate of premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, or post-trib, pre-trib type of things when the rapture is going to happen and everything else, because it's we we don't have enough time for that here today. And Paul doesn't make a mention of a whole lot of it, but he does say there is a rapture where we know we're going to be caught up, and it lines up with uh, Revelation 19 and 20, and also part of Mark 13. So all of these things line up, but we do do two things, right? So one. There will be a man of lawlessness, right? There will be an antichrist who is standing in the in the in the holiest of holies. He's standing in the temple, and the, and the, again, this coincides with what Jesus says in Mark thirteen. 
So there's going to be these tribulations, going to be this time of, of woe and everything else. But the second, more important thing is that Jesus is going to return. He's going to come back and fight. And we see this again in Revelation and Mark and, and the other Olivet Discourses. <clears throat> and Paul has a certainty because these prophecies will be fulfilled for the Messiah to come and be crucified. Right? He knew this happened. He can trust God's word for these things that are foretold in the Old Testament, especially Zephaniah, Zechariah, Isaiah, other, other of the minor prophets, especially where it foretells the day of the Lord. And so when we hear that phrase, that means that's indicating the last day. Right? That is the day of the judgment, the very final day, essentially. And again, it may not be a one single day. It may be a, a time frame or something like that, but it's, it is the end times. It is the time where everyone will be judged. All right. And that's a you know, and he will conquer Satan and the Antichrist. So we know he wins, and we tell this all the time. We know how the story ends. And so this is a foregone conclusion, and we just have to wait for it to happen and we have to be ready if it happens in our lifetime and again you can you can take a lot of the stuff that's happening today and you say oh this is definitely it and there's videos going around with certain things um, and so I'll say this about the mark of the beast is the fact that that's you swearing that you will worship the antichrist and not God and not Jesus so if you don't when you don't swear fealty when you don't Swear and say to worship Satan, then you will not take the mark of the beast, right? You are a Christian. And so that's how we avoid that part of it. Now, there's other implications of that as well, but if it happens in our time, we need to remain strong in our faith. And so until this time happens, if we're still waiting, until this happens, right, what do we do? How do we apply this information? How do we wait well, right? So this is a this is our orthopraxy, our application. How do we live right? Well, the biggest thing is that we pray for God's work to be done in our life, right? We pray to get through this. We pray to get through any kind of persecution that's going on in, in, in our life. We And Paul reminds the Thessalonian church that they have suffered persecution well. And Paul even says he boasted about them. You know, he's he's kind of bragging to his other friends or other other churches he may go to to say, look, this church is doing it right. There, he's giving them kudos. And Paul also instructs, and this is this is kind of the main point of in in, in uh, chapter five, verse sixteen. I believe. Let's see. Let me look. Make sure. I have to make sure I got it right now. Yeah, chapter 5, verse 16, right? He says, Rejoice always. Rejoice always. And pray without ceasing. And give thanks in all circumstances. There's several places in here where Paul asks for prayer from them. He says, Look, and even in verse three, chapter 3 in, in 1 Thessalonians, verse 11 through 13, right? He prays for them. He writes it down in the, in the letter. He prays for them a written prayer. And giving thanks in all circumstances. He's giving thanks to God for this church and he's wanting them to continue on that process. Right? But what does pray, praying without ceasing look like? Right? Does that mean you just stay in your room all day praying and not eating, not drinking, not working? That's kind of how some of the ascetics or the monks, some of the, the monk orders took it. That was just basically their job. Um, but of course not, right? We all can't do that. Things would stop. And so we need to learn to pray with our eyes open. And what I mean by that is we need to look at what God is showing you. 
How is he answering your requests? How is he answering your prayers? And maybe it's not what you expected, but you can definitely see after kind of a process of elimination of certain things that this is God definitely answering your prayer because you prayed about this for however many months, years, days, whatever it took, however long it took to get that answer. Or we need to look and see how God is doing and moving in your life. Right, when we see that Paul is praying and he's giving thanks to the churches and you kind of see all, that all through his letters, that's why we're not going to stress it a lot unless it comes up, but this I think is one of the letters that he is really praying. It's really a pastoral letter that he is praying for his churches in this time of need because he knows it's a big shift and he's getting persecuted so he knows that the other churches are also being persecuted. And it's also an expectation that we will pray as well, right? And so we don't really pray for us, ourselves, but we also pray for God's work to be done in others' lives. And so Paul wants to restore harmony in, in the church because there's some things going on, and he, he gives advice on how these churches should conduct themselves in the new society. And Paul lets them know and many of the churches he wrote, wrote them to, that he is, again, praying for them as well. He's, he's going through a whole mess and the, through the different prisons, you know, the prison epistles. He's in prison writing to them. And you think, wow, you should probably just worry about yourself, Paul. Just get yourself out of jail. But he's like, look, I'm sitting in here, I'm praying for you, because he didn't have anything else to do anyway. So he's praying for all these churches that he did, right? And we see, and Paul makes a point a couple times and says, look, I told you, so you, you should imitate me because he is imitating Jesus, right? Paul is taking on and following Jesus' example, right? So Paul imitates Jesus by praying for others, right? In the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before the, or before the arrest, Jesus was in the garden. He, was, he not only prayed for himself, but he started praying for everybody else. He prayed for others. He prayed for the apostles. He prayed for things going on. And so we see Paul doing the same thing as well. And so praying in front of the person is indeed one way to show them love. All right, so A.W. Pink was convinced there was no better way, no more practical, valuable, and effective way of expressing solicitude and affection for our fellow saints by bearing them up before God by prayer in the arms of faith and love. So as we pray, don't just pray for things for your turnout, but think, pray for other people. Even people you don't see, right? Again, praying with your eyes open is to be aware of people that are around you and what's going on around you, right? So pray for people when you hear them get bad news. Don't eavesdrop. I'm not suggesting you eavesdrop and listen to all these things and you don't have to walk up and say, I just prayed for you to kind of get some kind of credit or anything like that. But if you're in a doctor's office, we'll say, and somebody comes out and you can kind of tell, you know, body language wise, things happen. And you don't even need to know what it is, but you can just pray for them. It doesn't have to be specific. It doesn't have to be like, oh, pray for this person's exact problem, but God, please help this person through whatever problem it is. Right? See what's going on. See, see you can pray for a mother that's overwhelmed with three little kids in a store or maybe a car that looks like it's going to crash. And again, you, you need to do other things also, take actions for certain things when it's appropriate. But sometimes all we have the ability to do is pray. But pray with your eyes open, both for yourself and for others. 
And so how do we improve our prayers, though? So Martin Luther says, he's instructing the layman as he's writing different things for people, his parishioners. He says, the less thou speakest, the better thou prayest. All right, so the less you speak, the better you pray. Prayer should be in spirit and in truth, and that, that is the inward desire. All right, so how do we improve our prayers? I got five things that are very quick and easy, and if you're taking notes, if not, I'll, I'll, I will kind of I'll post them under this video so everybody can kind of remember it. Um, be brief. It doesn't have to be a long, drawn-out prayer. It needs to be as long as it needs to be. Kind of like the sermons, they just need to be as long as they need to be to get the point across. Um, sometimes the less words, the better. And next is be honest. When you come to God and you're praying for yourself, when you, you're supposed to humble yourself as part of the prayer. And so we need to be honest with ourselves and get rid of the things that are getting in our way of God. And that goes to the next one, is be humble. Right, because as guys, I've used this before, and it's, it gets a lot of traction, I guess, but at the same time, we don't like to ask for help as people. We don't like to ask for, for direction or things like that. We just want to follow along or figure it out ourselves. But we know at some point we need to come to God to humble ourselves, to repent, and also say, I need help with this. The next is be specific. Right? Be Paul Paul, when you read his prayers in here, when you read other prayers, you see that he's very very specific about what he wants. And again, sometimes you just don't know what you need. So sometimes it's just the brief part is just help me. Um, other times you can say, I want this, or I need this, or please give me this direction or sign. Because that will help you look around and see how God is answering, the, answering your prayers as well. Because it's not just, if you, it's not a fortune teller thing where you're going to meet a dark-haired man who's mysterious or whatever. And, and that could mean a myriad of things, right? But if you say, look, I want to show these things. Gideon was very specific with his prayer. Make the fleece wet. Keep the fleece dry. Right? If these are the things and signs you, you want to show me, then that's what it is. And lastly, though, it's Paul's advice from chapter 5, verse 17. Be unceasing. Never stop praying. Pray in your car. Pray in, your, in the shower. Pray in wherever you are. Because the more you look around, the more you see people's needs or maybe perceive it, you can pray for them and pray for yourself to get through certain things. And it's just this constant plug-in. Because you're never your battery, if you plug it into God, is never going to run out or never it's never going to go bad. And you can do this while we're waiting, because we need to wait on God. And again, we're waiting for the end times, but we're also waiting for a lot of other things in our lives that we need. And so, Paul was overjoyed at the church's idea of being a church. Right, this this the church where they were doing everything right. They were exercising faith and charity toward others. They would be on the newspaper, on the bulletin of, of, you know, Thessalonica church saves thousands, is a model model church, and they're planning other churches, right? But the problem was that the expectation of a handout while people were waiting, they stopped working. They were waiting around like, hey, we're wait. We know the rapture's coming on Tuesday, so just can I have a hamburger today? You know. And they were waiting this, and that was not a way to love your neighbor. You should not be burdening your neighbor by making them take care of you. Right? So everybody, Paul encourages everybody to work. And, every, and Paul encourages the Thessalonians, 
the Thessalonians that they were justified and they were being sanctified as they were going through all these trials and tribulations they were being sanctified along the way but they needed a little help right and they needed a constant refining and shucking off of the old life and so the name that I gave you in the introduction right Wilma Rudolph who was she so she was born in Tennessee to a family of 21 she had polio and did not have the resources and she had a few other health problems also some of the other articles I found said she did not have the resources to become a professional athlete especially in the 1950s right she's a female athlete from a poor family with health problems especially polio um, but by the time she was 12 she had overcome polio and she started to walk again to her doctor's surprise and she took up athletics and eight years later she was already an Olympic champion now her sport was she was a sprinter as well right so it wasn't just she decided to do some kind of you know easy track and field event but it was she was a sprinter so she went from barely being able to walk as a child having braces and everything else on her legs to being a world-class sprinter and so Wilma defied all odds and won three gold medals at the Summer Olympics in 19 in Rome in 1960 and so I wanted to make sure that it just wasn't just a feel-good, worldly story of, of people who just persevered. They had the grit, as the word is, the buzzword is, the, is popular today. But she was a reader of the Bible and also a follower of one who said, nothing is impossible if you have faith. Right? So according to one of the church pages, I, I couldn't see if it was her church or the church she had belonged to at some point or not, but it said she th had thought God had a greater purpose for her than to win three gold medals. So she started the Wil Wilma Rudolph Foundation to help children learn about discipline and hard work. Uh, she had faith and she exercised it and did what she needed to do while she waited to go home to heaven. And so you see, she had faith, she persevered. My guess is if she was truly a woman of faith, like it alludes to here, she was probably a whole lot of prayer to get from being in, having polio to becoming a world-class sprinter. There's a lot of assumptions there a little bit. I couldn't find a lot, but you can find more if you look her up. If you put Wilma Rudolph, comma, faith, um, you, you pull up a bunch of diff different articles and she used in other things like the daily devotionals and things like that. And so we can do the same thing. We can persevere to get to our goals because we know that God is planning something bigger for us than what it seems like. Not just having her win gold medals and run races but she helped countless other countless hundreds or maybe thousands of children learn to do the same thing um, and so the, 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 the excuse me the Thessalonians and the church now exist in a time of now and not yet right we have to persevere while we wait right so prayer is your power cord that recharges you when you plug into God Right? And the help we get comes from God, the Holy Spirit. Right, So prayer and perseverance helps us keep a God-centered life, which means making the quest for spiritual and moral holiness the great business of life. And so when we do this, when we pray, we can do those five things. It kind of boils it down to, to say, how do I improve my prayer life? I don't pray four hours a day. I, I, I don't have the time. Other people do. Other people did. Great. If you do, awesome. If not, you can do those things because it needs to be constant contact with God. And that will give us a perseverance to get through what is now as we change and also what we are doing while we're waiting for Jesus' second return.
So let's go ahead and close in prayer. And I, I thank you, everybody, for joining us today. Uh, this is a little bit unorthodox in a sense, um, but I hope you take this lesson and read the letters 